So I'd like to begin our, our time this morning just by reading uh, the words of a hymn by John Newton called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that some, in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. And I love this hymn because of the truths it contains. There's a high view of God uh, and a realistic picture of the frailty of man. The author begins with a humble prayer and then he reacts to his own plans being frustrated as far as he is concerned, they're, they're good plans. He's not an unbeliever. He is uh, a child of God who honestly prays uh, earnestly to, to grow in Christian graces. But it's the method the Lord uses to answer this prayer that is unexpected and almost uh, drives the author to despair. Instead of his temptation and trial subsiding, they're ratcheted up and all of his planning comes to nothing until he finally cries, Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And only then comes the answer from a loving, sovereign Lord. In this way, I've answered your prayer for a greater grace and faith. And by stripping away all the competing affections in the author's heart, the Lord Jesus shows him that he, Christ, is the greatest treasure. And so he stops grieving over his failed plans, his, his failed schemes of earthly joy, as the author puts it, to find his all in Christ, in ultimate answer to his prayer. Can you relate to John Newton? As believers, we strive to honor Christ with our lives and grow in faith and love and obedience. Uh, we want to know more of him and grow in sanctification but we live in the world, and so we must um, get on in the world, uh, even though we are not of the world. And so we're called to be faithful in all our duties, at work, at home, and as we navigate life, we have plans for education, um, for work, um, for marriage in most cases, um, for family, for relationships with friends and neighbors and for ministry. And these are good plans. Um, some of you were with us uh, a couple years ago when we went through Proverbs 
and we saw that wise followers of God make plans for the future. So there's nothing wrong about planning or, or desiring these good things. But what is our reaction when these plans are frustrated? I'm, I, I confess I often act like the author of the hymn, almost driven to despair. I mean, I prayed for this. It, it seems a, like a good desire, but my plans are coming to nothing. In fact, things may get worse. You know, all of it, it's, it's a little bit of joke in that. Uh, yeah. Yep. Quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. So today and next week, we're going to look at a book of the Bible that uh, doesn't get much attention, but has much to say about how God works in the lives of, of his people to turn our attention away from self and to his kingdom and his glory and to value him above all else. So please turn in your Bibles to Haggai. And I'll give you some time to find it. Uh, there's, no, there's no shame in using the table of contents. Uh, we don't usually spend much time in Haggai. Um, if you're reading through your Bible in a year, you'll be in the book for a day. So it's uh, easy to breeze over it without much thought. You can, if you want to go to Matthew and turn to the left three books, you'll, you'll be in, in Haggai. It's on, it's on page 1,330. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll wait until the rustling pages stop. It's, it's not a sword drill, so you take, take your time. As we will see, the, the Lord uses the words of Haggai the prophet to bring an immediate change in the heart of his original audience, um, a passage we've been discussing a lot on Wednesday evenings as we talk about um, parenting and ministering to children is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so Haggai is is scripture. Um, So I pray it will be profitable for you as it has been profitable for me. And Haggai is one of the the 12 minor prophets, uh, not minor in importance, but, but minor in size. So maybe the fact that we're calling them the minor prophets is one reason why they're sometimes overlooked, uh, perhaps. But Haggai had a very important message to deliver to Judah. And the Lord's words through his prophet are also important for us today. Haggai calls us to consider our ways, and it teaches us how God works repentance in his people, empowering them to accomplish the work he has called them to do. And we're going to unpack this truth in Haggai chapter 1 today as as we examine three instruments God uses to awaken his people to accomplish his work. Three instruments God uses to awaken his people to accomplish his work. The outline is very simple. Instrument one is his word. Instrument two is his providence. Instrument three is his spirit. He uses his word, his providence, and his spirit to awaken his people and accomplish his work. First of all, we're going to see that God uses his word to awaken his people. So uh, read with me Haggai 1, and we'll start in verse 1, down through verse 4. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come. 
even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, it, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So here we're uh, given the setting of the prophet's message and who this prophet is. Haggai's name means festal, so perhaps he was born on a Jewish holiday. Um, we know very little about him. Uh, we only know what's in this book, and then there's a couple references to him in the book of Ezra. But we do have his four sermons recorded here, and they're very effective sermons. I think we would say Haggai is one of the most effective prophets in all the, the Old Testament. He preaches, and, and we'll see what happens as we go through the text. And God uses these sermons of Haggai to encourage Judah's leadership and the remnant that returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And there's, there's one goal, and that is to complete the building of the temple. Um, so the setting we get um, is that uh, this is during the, the reign of Darius the king. So who was Darius? He was a Persian king. So... How does it come to be that a Persian king is, is in power uh, at this time over the, the people of Judah? Well, if you'll remember from our uh, study in uh, Daniel that um, uh, Babylon conquered Israel. There was a long siege of Jerusalem, including a, a couple deportations of the people of Jerusalem. Daniel was part of that first deportation. It was the, the noble kids. Um, they were deported to Babylon. And so we remember that from Daniel. And then there was later another deportation. And then finally, the city is destroyed along with the temple in 587 and 586 BC. Uh, listen to what one commentator says. The destruction of the temple was a defining moment for ancient Israel. As a result of the loss of the temple structure, it was no longer possible to worship the Lord according to the prescriptions of earlier Israelite practice. A large portion of the community was either dead as a result of the conflict with the Babylonians or were in exile in Babylon with great restrictions imposed on their religious freedom. The destruction of the temple was for those who survived an unpleasant reminder of the spiritual failures of the nation. Its absence was a painful metaphor of the religious and moral condition of the community itself. For this reason, once the exile was over, the post-exilic prophets Haggai and Zechariah entertained no hope for normalization of the life of the nation apart from the rebuilding of the temple. In the thinking of these prophets, it was inconceivable that the temple should remain in its ignominious condition. So the temple's destroyed. The people are, for the most part, gone. There is the small remnant that continue to live there, but it, it's almost uninhabitable, the, the city. It's just, it's in ruins. Um, and then you'll also recall from our time in Daniel that the Babylonian Empire fell to Persia in 539 BC. And so Daniel, his, his book spans both. He, he was deported uh, to Babylon, but he's there for the fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia as the great world power. And so Persia uh, 
defeats Babylon 539 BC, which is why we have Darius ruling at the time of Haggai's prophecy. Uh, but to understand the context of Haggai, I think it's understand to it's important to understand the Persian influence that was um, holding sway over this period of this time. So. Um, Again, there's some overlap here with, with uh, Pastor Farrell's teaching, so I'll try not to re- repeat everything he said, but if you've been tracking along with Daniel, this will be familiar to you. So Cyrus was the Persian king who conquered Babylon, uh, but his reign was very different from the other rulers and despots of the time who kept their foot on the neck of conquered people. Um, Cyrus saw himself as a liberator of previously conquered peoples, and he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and even finance the rebuilding of, of the city, uh, city wall, city, city temple. And so uh, history views Cyrus almost universally as a, as a very positive figure. Um, he's, a, he's kind of a master politician. He's like, I'll conquer the people, but I'm not looking to um, oppress them. Instead... I want to encourage their their way of life and their worship, whatever that is. He was not a follower uh, of the God of Israel, but um, he saw the political advantage of, of letting people alone, keeping them content, and then that would free up his empire to expand to other peoples and conquer other peoples. And so he was he was a master at that, and he even Jewish historians view him very favorably because he, he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, rebuild. He wasn't going to interfere in their worship. So so this was the the background. Now Cyrus moves off the scene. There's a, another king that comes to power, and after that, it's it's Darius who's who's uh, in power at this time, which is 520 BC. We know that because there's a very specific date at the beginning, um, and then there's a bookend date at the end of chapter 1. So we know all of what happens in chapter 1 takes place over the course of 24 days. So his sermon is preached at the beginning. We'll see what transpires in the chapter. It's 24 days total. And then we see who the uh, audience of Haggai's message is. Um, it's delivered to the leadership of Judah that was in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel represents the political leadership at the time. He's the governor. He's the governor set up by the Persians to rule what was a relatively just small, unimportant area of the Persian kingdom. But he's, he's their, their chosen ruler. And then Joshua, the high priest, represents the religious leadership of Judah, and so Haggai seems to be targeting the leadership. The people are also in view here. Um, I think the idea is if the leadership comes on board, the people will follow, but we'll see later on that the people are included as the audience uh, of this sermon. We also have some background in the book of Ezra, which tells the story of the remnant that returned to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the city. Uh, work on the temple had begun when the initial exiles returned, but opposition from outside and discouragement from within had, had stopped the work. And so nothing really had been done in 16 years by the time we get to Haggai chapter 1. So um, I think in 
21st century America, it's hard for us to understand what those people were facing when they came back to a city in ruins. Um, you know, thankfully we've never experienced being in a war-torn country. Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you have lived in war zones, but um, for us, you know, coming back to a city that's lying in, in ruins after being decimated um, by a military conquest, something that's kind of outside of our understanding. But the fact is that they were commanded to rebuild and um, the building on the temple had, had stopped. Nothing had been ha happening for 16 years. And then the first words out of Haggai's mouth as, as God's spokesperson, his prophet, reveal the authority he speaks with. It's not his own authority, but these are the very words of God that must be obeyed. His first words are, thus says the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is Haggai's favorite title for, for God. Um, it has the con military connotations. God is the leader of Israel's armies and the armies of heaven. But um, post-exile, it it's, probably speaks more of the glory of God and his sovereign rule over all of creation. And we immediately see God's displeasure as he refers to them as this people, not my people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, um, that's an, uh, kind of like if, if, if a husband referred to his, his wife as this woman, that, that would be, it just doesn't sound right to us, unless there's some displeasure in his voice like, this woman spent $500 at Whole Foods or something like that. So they could be, could be like that. Or you think of like how parents talk to each other, uh, like an exasperated mother speaking to a father about a misbehaving child. Would you sp please speak to your son? You know, the thought being that no child of mine could, could act this way. This must be something from your, your side of the family or whatever is, is coming out. So, but this is serious. These are, these are God's covenant people, but they're not acting like it. And the Lord brings up his complaint, complaint against them. This language communicates that there is something wrong in the relationship. Where there should be intimate fellowship, there is now distance. Um, and the returned exiles were not ready to complete the work of rebuilding the temple, the house of the Lord. It was not what they were. It's not that they were against the work per se, but this was just not the time. They were saying, in effect, it will get done, just not yet. Um, and so the text doesn't tell us why exactly they were making excuses. But a rhetorical question from the Lord reveals that their priorities were inverted. They were not seeking first the Lord and his kingdom. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Um, so we have, you know, the, the houses played off against each other. Your houses, my house. Your houses are like this. My house is in ruins. And so those are, uh, the priorities are, are laid right in front of them. And this reference to paneled houses seems to indicate that their dwellings, at least for some of their residences, were beyond the necessities of life, um, luxurious. Um, later on, when we see kind of the economic hardship that these people are enduring, it's probably not that everybody was living in paneled houses, 
but uh, he's speaking to the leadership. Perhaps their houses were, were luxurious. Um, it, the text doesn't specify, but the the gist of it is that their their residence, residences went beyond the necessities of life. Their basic need for housing had been met. Their houses were considered luxurious in the eyes of the Lord compared to his house that was lying in ruins. And they had plenty of time to work on their own homes while neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. But they were blind to who was opposing them because of their neglect. So in verses 5 through 11, we learn that God uses his providence to awaken his people to accomplish his work. So let's read verses 5 through 11. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on, the gra- on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So in this section of Haggai's sermon, we read the sad reality that Judah is under God's covenant curses because of their disobedience. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 11 real quickly. We'll just go back and look at God's promised land for Israel and and its promised abundance. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Start reading in verse 8. These are the rewards of, of obedience for Israel in the promised land. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey, for the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land from which the God, the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, 
that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So those are great, great promises um, of blessing uh, for an obedient people. Now turn to Deuteronomy 28. This We're going to see the flip side of it, that there are curses for disobedience. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights that, that speak to what's going on in Haggai chapter 1. So Deuteronomy 28, let's read verse 29. And you will grope at noon and the blind man gro- as a blind man gropes in darkness, and you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continu- continually with none to save you. Um, and then look down at verse 38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour it. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. So these sound a lot like um, what's going on in Haggai 1, and it's because the Lord says very clearly, um, because of their disobedience, they will not complete the work of rebuilding the temple. God is graciously pointing out to them that by his providence, he is opposing their efforts to build wealth, causing their agricultural and economic hardships because they have no concern for his house. So it seems that um, there's just a cycle here of drought, failed crops, um, talking about wages into purses with holes, could be speaking of inflation. So a loaf of bread because of scarcity, failure of crops, a loaf of bread used to cost one shekel, cost two shekels, something like that. Um, there was coins at this time. Persia did institute a system of coinage. so. Um, perhaps it's it's literal, but I think probably if you look at all the surrounding difficulty of of their their drought, failed crops, probably inflation. So God is is showing them that you're you're trying to accumulate wealth. You're you're trying to um, take care of your 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 own house and um, make something of yourself. But I'm the one that's that's opposing you. Providence is a word we don't really use much anymore, uh, so maybe it would be helpful to provide a definition. Um, when we say God uses his providence to awaken his people to accomplish his work, what, what are we saying? I like the way the Heidelberg Confession puts it in question 27 and 28. Question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, 
We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. So because of the disobedience of, of the people, the returned exiles are experiencing um, all of these calamities, drought, failed crops, inflation, low wages, that have left them discouraged and demoralized. And in this section, we see two instances of the phrase, consider your ways. In verse 5, the Lord says, consider your ways as he recounts their past hardship. But in verse 7, we read it again, and the Lord asks the people to consider their ways for the future. And in light of the past, the Lord shows them the way of repentance and obedience, and it involves action. If repentance from their selfish ways was genuine, they would bear fruit of repentance by doing the work that God had commanded, and this involved a radical change uh, from seeking their own pleasure to working for the pleasure of God. Their own pleasure was already out of reach because they were opposed by the Lord, but his pleasure and glory were assured if they completed the work he commanded. So let's read the rest of the chapter to see the people's response to Haggai's sermon from the Lord. Start reading in verse 12. Go down through the end of the chapter. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. All right, so I'm going to have to wrap this up quick. Um, So in these verses, we see that the Lord uses his own spirit to awaken his people to accomplish his work. The first reaction that we see is that the people showed reverence for the Lord. This is certainly an appropriate response when you consider what these people have just heard. They are being opposed by the Lord of hosts for their disobedience. So what hope do they have? Only only repentance. Thankfully, Haggai has a word of encouragement from the Lord to give them hope. In verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is a reversal of what we saw at the beginning of the sermon, where he said, this people, um, through repentance, they have been reconciled to their God, and he has declared his presence with them. He has accepted the repentance and at the same time stirs up the leadership and all the people by his spirit to accomplish the work he commands. This is so, so crucial. Uh, 
his spirit is, is at work. As one commentator puts it, behind the willing response of both leaders and people was the silent working of the Lord, creating a willing attitude by his spirit. So remarkably, at 23 days after Haggai begins to speak the word of the Lord of hosts, the people have repented from their selfish ways, gathered necessary materials, and begun the work of building the house of the Lord. And God continues to use uh, these three instruments in our lives today to bring about our repentance and motivate us in his work, his word, his providence, and his spirit. Today we need to hear Haggai's message from the Lord. We are still involved in a building project. Um, I'll read from, you don't have to turn there uh, for sake of time, but 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17 through 17 says this. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This new temple of God is the church, the body of Christ, and we, its members, are building on the foundation which is Jesus Christ. The apostles came and built on top of that foundation and faithful Christians have been contending for the faith and continuing the building project to this day. I need Paul's reminder uh, that there is coming a day when my work on this building, God's church, will be tried by fire. I don't want to suffer loss on that day because I was concerned with lesser things than the glory of God the glory of Jesus Christ and his pleasure. So let us consider our ways. How how are we building? We're all uh, fellow workers uh, on this building. And uh, it's um, gracious of the Lord to use his providence to um, frustrate plans that would lead us in a way where we are not valuing him and his kingdom and his glory above all else. It's also his providence uh, to, to lavish blessings and prosperity on us that we may share it with others, uh, share it with his body um, and, and bless others. So I, we have a couple minutes left. Any comments, questions? Sorry, I didn't leave much time at the end to any, any feedback. Yes, Chris. You'll yes, you'll have to uh, come back next week. So. <laughs> Chapter two, uh, we have Haggai's next three sermons. So you can read ahead if you'd like to read the end of the book before reading the whole book, the end of the story. But uh, yeah, we 
like we said, Haggai's a very successful prophet. He's, uh, we don't know much about him. He just shows up on the scene for a brief period of time, encourages the people. And um, as one commentator said, God uses some men for, for spot jobs. And so this was his spot job. He comes on the scene. We don't know hardly anything about him, but he faithfully preaches the word, which encourage, encourages me as a teacher. Just just don't, don't try to mess it up with all your creativity. Just deliver the word, and uh, the Lord uses it. So you know, It shows the, uh, the need for context. And so, so many of the Old Testament scriptures, they seem out of order. But you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, and that gives you a lot of context. Yeah. But then that's before Psalms and David, yeah. which was actually before that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's important to get the, the, chrono, the chronology of yeah. it and, uh, and where it fits in. Yeah, but that's good. Ezra and Nehemiah yeah. are crucial for that. Yeah, and Daniel gave you a lot of background on, yeah. on what was happening during this time. Yeah. Well, good. Well, let me pray for us, and uh, I'll let you go. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, uh, its clarity. Um, thank you for um, the message of, of your faithful servant, Haggai, uh, who was delivering your word to a people who were discouraged um, and uh, not doing what, what you wanted them to do. And so thank you for the story of, of how you work uh, through your word, through your providence through your spirit lord we pray you would do the same thing in our lives today lord help us not be satisfied with lesser things um, but to be consumed with uh, your kingdom uh, your righteousness lord Uh, do that work in us today by your spirit we pray in jesus name amen